Conversations with Yogananda. We are on class number six. We are on conversation number 11. Does anybody have anything left over from previous classes that needs to be resolved? All right, on we go. So, number 11, I'll read. Ted Krings, a new disciple, asked the master, Can you tell just by looking at a person how spiritually advanced he is? At once, replied the master with a gentle laugh. I don't talk about it, however. I am inside people because that's my job. (laughs) One who boasts that he knows these things knows them not. And one who says he knows not also knows them not. One who truly knows doesn't talk about it. Wisdom keeps its own counsel. Very interesting, isn't it? Um, I had a I had a thought uh, when uh, some of you were at Spiritual Renewal Week this last week, and I mentioned in my talk somebody asking me if the path gets easier the longer you're on it, and I or if it yeah yes if it gets easier they were afraid it gets harder that was basically the question. And I, I don't know what I exactly answered. Later on, Parvati, who spoke after me, actually sort of raised the same question. She says, it doesn't get easier or harder, it simply gets more wonderful, which I thought was an actually much better answer than any that I had given. But today, in a different conversation, I, I had a completely different thought, which I think is really the best answer that... And it's, re, it's related to other things we've discussed, but it seems an important one to emphasize. The whole question of asked, easier or harder, is based on my feeling, my capacity, and observing that someone else is doing something that I don't feel I have the capacity to do. That's usually the thought. I mean, Swami Kriyananda even talking once to Jyotish and Devi, who, Jyotish being his appointed successor, and they're taking on um, many of the responsibilities that Swami had, I, he must, I don't think they actually asked the question. I'm not really sure how the question came about. But he just said to them, don't worry, you won't have to go through what I went through. That was just my karma to have to go through that. But also what I was hearing, and this is where Master said, of course I can see inside of everyone's spiritual because that's my job. Um, meaning, one, he wouldn't have been given the job if he couldn't do it. I mean, it's necessary in the job assignment that he has that he be able to do it. It's almost like if he didn't, if he didn't have to do it, he wouldn't. It wouldn't, even like the power wouldn't be given to him. That's implied there. Um, and, and the way that the masters also regard their, um, their incarnations as a job is actually a very interesting point of view. Um, we say in the Festival of Light, greater can no love be than this from a life of infinite joy and freedom in God, willingly to embrace limitation, pain, and death for the salvation of mankind, such ever has been the sacrifice of the great masters for the world. There's this state of conscious freedom, and then in some way that is impossible for me even to imagine, there's some force of compassion that will bring them back again. Um, the way Ramakrishna tells the story um, is that, he, that, he, that it's described, and I don't know whether he exactly said it or one of his disciples had the vision, but somewhere in the great astral realms there are these deeply meditating yogis and then this little baby comes and tugs 
at these yogis and gets them to come out of their deep meditation because he has a job to do and he wants them to go with him. And as the story is told that Ramakrishna, who was an avatar in the 1800s, um, his most advanced disciples were those deeply meditating yogis who were willing to give up their meditation, take incarnation in order to help him with his job. Swami Kriyananda's master's spiritual son in this lifetime and has his physical and spiritual son in at least a couple of other lifetimes that he's mentioned, um, king of Spain, king of England. Um, you can see it's exactly the same relationship. Master has a job to do and he rounds up his group. And many of us feel that we're part of Swami's group. And Swami talked about the fact, has talked about the fact that we had a community in the astral world and that we came down as a group to make a community here, which is one of the reasons why the harmony of Ananda, even globally, is so pronounced compared to how many other groups have so much, have, uh, tend to have internal friction. We'll have from time to time difficult personalities to integrate. But we've never really had any internal fl- friction. Praise God, we never will. But we've never had rival leaders competing for power or, or factions breaking within the ashram. It's almost ludicrous in the context of Ananda. It just doesn't happen. But it's very common among groups. But Swamiji said the harmony among us was worked out for such a long time that it just doesn't happen for us. It's our job. It's our job to get along so we have this, because we're supposed to make a community after all, so we get along because it's our job. Well, I was thinking, going back to this question of hard or easy, um, I was realizing that what it really is is that over the, the, the course of our spiritual development, whether it's from previous incarnations and simply where we start in this lifetime or the gradual realization that comes to us over the course of even one incarnation and we can remember starting at a certain point and ending up at another, what happens to us is philosophy ceases to be a theoretical idea and it just becomes the way we understand things. It becomes our reality. We have certain realities. I'm a vegetarian. I've been a vegetarian for a very long time. I have no inclination to eat meat. Um, Of course, I certainly know that I don't need to eat meat. And it just never occurs to me that that's something I need to do or want to do in my life. It's not a discipline. It's not an affirmation. It's not a vow. It's just reality as I see it. I mean, that's an example. Another more dynamic example is the principle of karma and the principle of reincarnation. Those were not things that I was born knowing. Um, that were not, they were not part of my upbringing, raised in an American way. It wasn't part of my upbringing. But just before I met Swami, and especially afterwards, early in my life, the principles of karma and reincarnation started um, attracting me. And I had to, to work over a period of time to really come to both the first an understanding and secondly an acceptance of the principle of karma. Once you accept the principle of karma, it has all kinds of implications in your life. It it becomes impossible to blame others for what happens to you. It becomes impossible to feel victimized. It, It can't ever be anybody else's fault. Even if they have done things that have impacted you, the karma is always fair. And 
my own consciousness is all that I'm responsible for. The, the um, subsequent, the corollary to that, which is reincarnation, also has this principle that we might as well face it now. Because there's no escape. Death itself, suicide, nothing. Nothing. There's no escape. If it's causing me pain in the present, it will continue to cause me pain until I face whatever I need to face and overcome it. This is one of Swami's quotes. The suffering we cause ourselves lasts only as long as it takes us to learn the lesson God is trying to teach us. So I can say all those things and God knows I don't accept them without a struggle. Calm acceptance and joy does not necessarily come easily. But no matter what, it is my reality that I must accept them. And nothing else gets much traction inside of me. Okay, now that can look to someone very hard because a hard thing may happen to you and you just have to face it. There's just nothing you can do about it. You have to change yourself. That may look hard to someone, but it doesn't look hard from the level of reality that is just reality to you. Why would I... Um, uh, oh, there was a, somebody, I can't now remember who, was telling me about some kind of a, a, a cartoon or whatever it is, and a, a woman has a nail in her forehead right here, and it's just sticking out like this. And she's saying to the man she's with, and the pain just radiates out from here, and every time I move, it just hurts so much. And he he starts to tell her that she has a nail in her head. She protests, you men, all you ever want to do is fix things. You never really want to hear. I just want to tell you how I feel. (laughs) So he doesn't tell her. He just starts saying, oh, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry that you feel that way, you know. And so she begins to feel comforted by him. So she leans over to kiss him and the nail hits him in the head and then all of a sudden she feels the pain again. And she's all mad at him because... <laughs> but it's, it's, if it's not your level of reality, you're just going to hold it, aren't you? And you'll consider it very difficult because that's the level of reality you're living on. People are doing things to me and why don't they change? I just want to get away. Whatever, you see what I mean? So, again, it's, it's an interesting balance, coming back to what Master writes here, between recognizing and accepting what other different levels of reality can be there and being appropriately reverent in regard to them and at the same time accepting them as just, of course. Of course Master knows everything that's going on inside of us. That's his job. That's what he would do if you're going to be an avatar. That's what you need to do. And as Swamiji said to me about the yogi who uh, says he goes off in, in his astral body and spends the winters with Babaji high in the Himalayas. And Swami asked me if I thought he was who he presented himself to be. I said, well, sir, he was so casual about that. And Swami just said, well, at a certain point it is casual. It's just what you do. You go into a suspended state, you go in your astral body to be with Babaji. And there's nothing remarkable about it because it's your level of reality. Someone else may think that you're so advanced because of this or what you're facing is so hard, but it's not hard, it's just your job. It's your spiritual job at that particular point. Master's spiritual job is to 
And, and part of the reason why it's better not to become too excited about it, um, one, it, it opens the door for it to happen to us, but also it de-emphasizes the personal. Because it isn't so much that Master could do that, is that this is his job. This is, this is what happens at this level of reality. But it's also interesting just as a fact, because Swamiji said, Master never sat them down and, and said, I see this in you and therefore this and this and this. He never analyzed. He didn't uh, flaunt his superior knowledge. He didn't tell them all kinds of things that self-evidently he could have told them. Because it's, it's also a, an interesting um, observation and an important observation about how change really takes place. The change does not take place from just having it all laid out and revealed in front of us. It takes place from our gradual shifting of reality. And so as Swamiji said, Master would help create the opportunities for us to gain the self-understanding to be able to then move forward and see it for ourselves because we simply don't learn until we see it for ourselves. That's just the way it is. And the Master magnetized us, magnetizes in the present. He magnetizes us by his consciousness to be able to literally perceive a higher level of reality. And that higher level of reality, then we look at ourselves and we see ourselves differently. We see our potential differently. We see our uh, complexes differently, our karma differently. It's, a, it's just an entirely different process than um, the sort of uh, circus approach to spiritual growth, which uh, we sometimes imagine is actually what it's like. It's just one foot in front of the other until we change. Okay. Any comments or thoughts on any of that? I was remembering also in this light that Sri Yukteswar has quoted, maybe it's in this book, I think it's in this book. I mean, excuse me, Yogananda is quoted, I think, in this book, commenting that Lahiri had it lucky because when Lahiri's whole incarnation, there were no wars. And in Yogananda's lifetime, there were three. And just how much less painful on the heart it would be to be in the world during a time when it was not at war. But just that comment, he had it lucky. You know, like that Yogananda drew the short straw or something like that. But Yogananda himself was often a leader in war. You know, as Arjuna, as uh, William the Conqueror, as Ferdinand of Spain. So it wasn't merely that he was on a planet when there was war. He was often leading the charge. Just think about that. Isn't that interesting? That an avatar would also be a warrior and kill people and lead other people and lead other people to their death. Just, you have to... Uh, bigin your concept bigin greatly your concept because we're much too narrow in the way we think about this bigin is probably not an actual word is it? should be okay <laughs> but that, there's an Indian expression which I love which is very less <laughs> it was very less <laughs> am I wrong? I've heard that a lot people often say it was you know, very less <laughs> alright number 12 The master was talking to a small group of disciples, of whom all were monks except one, an older nun. The guru decided to have another nun summoned for the purposes of the discussion. I promptly offered to fetch her. You stay here, he commanded me almost peremptorily. Turning to the nun who was present, he said, you go get her. When she'd left the room, he said to me, 
Keep your distance and they will always respect you. For years, my assumption was that he'd meant only keep your distance from women generally, since he taught that also. The woman he wanted called, however, was someone in authority with whom, as he knew, I had often to discuss official matters. Meaning he was with her often, so what difference would it make if he went and fetched her at this point? Lately, I've asked myself whether he wasn't foreseeing another kind of problem altogether between the two of us, one which did in fact arise some years later, for there was nothing between us to suggest even slightly the kind of attraction that can develop between men and women. The problem, however, when it did arise, might have been avoided had a greater mental distance been kept between us. What developed was a somewhat condescending condescending attitude on her part toward me, a consequence, I now believe, of insufficient reserve between us. Well, this whole conversation is about Daimata and all the difficulty he had later. But Swami is doing several things here. One, he's talking about an actual the situation which is confusing and incomprehensible to him and to many of us, which is what happened between Daimata and Kriyananda. The other thing he's doing just to demonstrate it is how um, totally... He, it's, it's an example of how Master was so tuned in, just exactly what he said. It's his job to know, you know who everybody is and where they're going and where their karma is heading. And to, if, not, if he's not able actually to avert the karma, um, he gives hints that might help us to avert it. Or even, uh, even if that's not going to work... It's a comfort to the disciple to see later that the master knew it was going to happen. Think about the life of uh, Peter and Jesus, where Pete, uh, Jesus is talking at the Last Supper about him going somewhere where they can't follow him. And Peter, who was a very impetuous sort, declares, wherever you go, Jesus, I will follow you. And Jesus says, oh, And then he predicts, he said, before the dawn comes, you'll deny three times that you even knew me. And of course, that's exactly what happened to Peter in the the fear and chaos of Jesus being arrested and put on trial and in so many ways um, put under the power of the Roman authority. And therefore, all the disciples were threatened. Peter panicked and three times said he wasn't a disciple. No, he didn't know Jesus at all. I'm not one of his followers. And he was just in a, a frenzy of that, and it wasn't until he heard the rooster crowing, which is what Jesus had said, when the cock crows, you'll, you'll deny me three times before the, the cock crows again. And when he heard that sound, Peter came out of the um, delusion that he'd been operating in and realized that exactly what his master had told him would happen did happen. Now, that's both comfort and not comfort. Later when Jesus was resurrected, three times he said to Peter, feed my sheep. And Peter said, I will, Lord. And then Jesus repeated it three times. And each time Peter said, yes. And he became a little distraught. Why are you asking me this? I've already answered you. But he balanced, Jesus balanced the karma. So even if um, the guru can't prevent it, the understanding that he was there in it with you is, is just one more way of uh, proving um, there seems to be a man who looks like he's going to live in our courtyard tonight. Okay. Um, the, 
it's just another way. Maybe you could shut the door on your way out. Yeah, thank you. Um, the, uh, uh, it's another way of, of helping the disciple to know that the guru is always with you. I mean, now these, as I was talking earlier about certain things that become your level of reality and not merely something you read, you know, the, the idea deeply held in our minds that God and Guru know what they're doing with us and even the experiences we're having that seem to be happen, happening outside of their presence are actually happening within their view. I mean, see how different that makes everything? Sister Gyanamata, um, in her little monologue that I gave as part of that play, she said, before, before I met Master, when I, I knew I needed a guru, but I didn't have one. I decided to take every circumstance of my life as a direct lesson from the guru. I mean, just think. Think about it for a moment. Anything in your life that you're struggling with, any circumstance in your life, what, what if you had an actual note from Master that said, here is the situation I'm going to put you in. Here is the experience I'm going to give you. Not saying that you're doing well or you're doing badly, but you're going to experience. You know, you're going to experience this state of panic. You're going to experience this state of anxiety. You're going to experience this loss. You're going to experience this tragedy. And I'm sending it to you. I see how, I mean, that's a rather different reality, isn't it? And that's why the Master says things like this. Now, on the other side of it, you have just Swami's just frank statement that if I had actually heard what Master said and followed his advice, um, I might not have had so much trouble. I mean, the, without going into to more detail than any of us really want to go into right now, um, among the things that happened between Swami and Ayamata, among other things, was that he did consider himself to be the younger, which he was. He was chronologically younger and he was younger in the work. And he confided too much about his own self-doubts. He didn't keep that little bit. It was what he called mental reserve. You know, sometimes we're inclined, we, we, we just tell someone too much. We think it's a positive thing to do, but we tell them too much. Master says, actually says, don't tell your faults to anyone. And this is the interesting phrase. Lest later in a fit of anger, they use what you've told them against you. And that's precisely what happened to Swamiji, that his, his uh, confessions of weakness and exaggerated sense of his own shortcomings became, in her mind, his nature. But he was the one who planted a lot of those thoughts in her mind. I had that strange experience, you know, the don't tell your faults to anyone. I, I was working, I was responsible for a project at Ananda Village. And um, at that time, interestingly, I, I sincerely thought that I didn't have a very good sense of uh, visual harmony. I just had never, I'd never expressed it, I'd never used it. I just didn't think I had it. But I was supervising, actually, it was the publishing of the path. And even though I was not a designer, when I, could, when I looked at a design or a layout of a page, I could almost always tell where the weak points were and what needed to happen for it to be improved. Just, I did have the ability to do that. But I still didn't think of myself as a person with any particular aesthetic sense. So I was always saying, 
well, I don't have any sense of design. Well, I don't have a visual sense. I was constantly saying that. And then I got into sort of a dispute with someone who, who was working with that part of the book who constantly affirmed that they did have such a good eye, but I realized not actually as good as mine, <laughs> just impersonally. But they were able to constantly neutralize my influence, even though I was in a position of authority, with my own words. And I finally realized there was no evidence whatsoever for the position that she was taking against me except my own words. Be careful about telling your faults to others lest in anger they turn them against you. The other thing he's saying is, you know, people, you have to be realistic about people's own shortcomings. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you judge them, but you just realize that you can't, you know, give someone ammunition if, they, if you know that they have the temperament that might use that ammunition to shoot. You can tell your master, you can tell those in your life that you can really trust, but you can't just speak to any, everyone about everything. You know, even master says the one before, wisdom keeps its own counsel. And he wasn't talking necessarily about this, but it's important. Often people actually uh, poison their own relationships because they don't keep enough mental reserve. It's not a popular idea in our culture today because reserve (laughs) is probably, if you talk about modern culture and reserve, it's an oxymoronic just to say that. But Swami is using a very interesting example here to make the point, isn't he? It has many implications. All right, anything else? I mean, any questions in relation to any of this? Okay. Let's, uh, you know, it is a bit warm, isn't it? Maybe we could open the door again and it'll help us. Okay. Number 13. These just are so wide-ranging. The first question we dealt with is, Master, when you look at someone, can you see their spiritual state? Yes. Now we're talking about Diamant and Kriyananda. Now, divorce is widely considered by Christians. We have a whole series here about vows and marriage. It's very interesting. Divorce is widely considered by Christians to be contrary to the teachings of Jesus Christ. In the Catholic Church, it is not even permitted. In matters of this nature, however, affecting as they do a person's own life, one should be guided by intuition and not only by church policies. This is to say also that one should inquire what the wise, rather than any mere institution, have said on the subject. Now there's a lot of information in there that's really important. Paramahansa Yogananda did not see marriage as being necessarily made in heaven, even when it had been blessed in a church. To him, the sanctity of marriage depends on the degree of a person's spiritual awareness. The following story was one he told about Amalita Galacurci, the famous Italian opera singer who was also his devoted student. It illustrates the importance of soul union as opposed to merely institutional or legal sanction. Of course, Swami arrived in the 1920s when divorce was really not happening. You know, in the, 19, in the 2015s, a hundred years later, it's quite a different world. This inner union was to him the true meaning of the ceremonial phrase in the marriage service, whom God hath joined together, etc., let no man put asunder. Madame Galacucci, the master said, was married first to a drunkard 
who when he drank to excess used to beat her. One day he raised a chair to strike her. She looked him straight in the eye with calm inner strength. Then she turned away and walked out of his life forever. Years later, she married Homer Samuels, her accompanist. Theirs was a true soul union. Divorce, the master felt, is not necessarily in conflict with spiritual law or with the teachings of Jesus Christ. If marriage obstructs a person's spiritual development, it may be his spiritual duty to leave it. As the Indian scriptures teach, if a lower duty conflicts with a higher one, it ceases to be a duty. There's a lot in there, isn't there? Okay, so shall we start with the first paragraph? In matters where your personal life is affected, one should be guided also by intuition and not merely by church policies. You know, the, uh, the position of the Catholic Church in regard to divorces become quite ludicrous. Uh, the father of friends of ours, who had been a loyal Catholic all his life and had like a 40 or 50 year marriage that ended when his wife died, um, later found another woman that he wanted to marry in you know, a, a, a late and, and then turning out to be short marriage. She was also a Catholic and she had been married for a number of years, um, had children with her husband, but he, he was not a good man and in the end they separated and divorced. But in order for them to marry in the church, she had to get the marriage annulled. Maybe he even had to get his marriage annulled. And they went through this just ridiculous, you know, just totally bureaucratic, having nothing to do with anything. Finally, you know, they're, what, 70 years old and they're getting these lifelong relationships annulled so that they can marry again, so they can still take the sacraments. I mean, common sense in our times just says, what? You know, what is this really about? People are living longer, they have second marriages, all kinds of different things are happening that make it strange. But even from the beginning, how can you have a church policy about something so personal? How can, how could God want? You know, Amalita to say married to a man who drinks and beats her. It just, where, 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 where does that fit in? You know, so much of, uh, uh, so much of, of, of uh, dogmatic religious philosophy, I mean, oddly enough, in India it's just as bad. I mean, women are even told by their own mothers to stay in marriages that it's a travesty to stay in them. Just, there's no, it's, a, it's demeaning, it's humiliating, it might even be dangerous, it's crazy, and vice versa. Sometimes men are saddled with women who are just totally impossible. Once we lose track of the concept of self-realization, and once we lose track of the concept in the West, that's what's really happened, we don't remember anymore that self-realization is the point. You know, even, I mean, there, there's a solid reason for loyalty in marriage, for, for marriage being a sacrament, for the necessity for discipline, for us not, as Master said, to just merely... Master says, you know, Americans are so fickle. He said they change jobs, homes, and spouses just at the drop of a hat. And then he says about the changing of spouses, he says, oh, well, he says, in some ways it's better because they learn faster. They don't spend a whole incarnation just hanging out with one person and never learning anything. They get to go through a whole bunch of experiences. Master looking at the bright side of an impossible situation. But that kind of casualness also leads to a lack of... uh, 
inner discipline. So everything has its downside. But to say, as Swami said, merely to stick it out to the end of life is not necessarily a victory if it's done, and he says that later, at the cost of your spiritual development. I mean, sometimes to stick it out is your spiritual development, but sometimes to stick it out is at the cost of your spiritual development. And this is what the last paragraph says. You know, when a lower duty conflicts with a higher duty, and our first duty is always to God, and if something genuinely conflicts with that duty, we have, we have an obligation, not merely a right, but we have an obligation to act in uh, attunement with our own soul welfare. And for that reason, to, to take any temporal, any temporary situation and give it eternal value. And marriage is just a temporary situation when you think about reincarnation. When you read an autobiography of a yogi about how Master talks about in the astral world, you know, you, you meet people with whom you've had so many different relationships, this kind of exclusivity um, that, that, human, that the human body and the human life demands of you, you can't maintain it in the astral world because you see how many incarnations you've had, how many people have been your children, how many people have been your spouse. I was am- amused, Devi and Jyotish tell the story of when their, uh, their son was born and Devi, the, the, the labor went very quickly and the midwife hadn't arrived. And she was actually in the period which I guess is called transition where, you, where your consciousness becomes very vulnerable. And she became a little um, anxious. And Jyotish in his way tried to comfort her by saying, Oh Devi, really think about it. You've given birth to enough children over the course of many lifetimes to populate the whole city of Sacramento, he said to her. And it made her laugh. She also laughed because he said Sacramento, which is not a very glamorous place. And she said she had this picture of one of those all-night restaurants like Denny's or Eppie's and all of these people going in and out all night and all of them in some incarnation had been her children. (laughs) She said if he'd said Paris or Rishikesh or someplace, she could have had another image but Sacramento. (laughs) So she laughed in the midst of it all and it broke the tension and everything went forward (laughs) very nicely. But it's true. And, and, you know, these are the balance points, though, because that does not, that's not a license for, for fickleness or lack of discipline or selfishness. But it does put it in honest perspective. So, but this is a, you know, the institutions, institutions can exert a pretty powerful hypnosis. And it's not such an easy thing to dismiss. If you've been raised uh, with a point of view, and that point of view has really been inculcated, I'm... I'm amazed even to this day how many people raised in the Jewish religion just have this thing about Jesus. And they just can't get past it. It has no... Someone was talking to me about it, a friend. was talking about not wanting to be around Ananda at Christmas and planning to go here and there and so on and just explain because of the Jewish and blah, blah, blah. I said, my, my, my. I think you're just letting your subconscious mind rule you. Unfortunately, I knew the person I was talking to and she was able to just burst out laughing. I said, what is the point of that? You know, you know that what you were inculcated with as a child in that institutional religious setting has nothing to do with the teachings of Jesus. I mean, for the simple fact, Jesus never stopped being a Jew and almost all his followers were Jews. I mean, what is this? I'm a Jew, I can't relate to Jesus because Jesus was a Jew. 
You know, we're talking about the church. We're not talking about truth. And to that woman's credit, she just went right ahead and straightened it out. But we have to, but institutional policies, when you've been told for a long, long time that you'll go to hell for doing this, it's not so easy to just say, no, I won't. <laughs> so you have to look to the wise also. And that's why Master talks about this. You know, so, and later we'll talk about vows. Master did not see marriage necessarily as made in heaven, merely because it had been blessed by a religious institution. He said, it depends on the degree of a person's spiritual awareness. Now, this is the whole essence of Master's teaching. Everything is form, is any, everything is energy and consciousness, not form. And that's, that's just the whole key. That's what we're talking about. Marriage is merely a form, but energy and consciousness are important. That's why just to be promiscuous or fickle or unfaithful is not at all what he's proposing because those represent states of consciousness. And we have to be very, very careful about our state of consciousness. Whether or not a marriage is legal or sanctified by a church is merely a form. It's the state of consciousness we have within it that matters. And then he talks about Amalita Galakuchi, whom he often uh, praised for her um, courage at a time, you know, at the time when divorce was not at all sanctioned. You were just supposed to tough it out no matter what. Presumably this was sent by God and I just have to endure it. But for having the courage just to walk away and then for having the faith to try again. I can't remember now what circumstance. Oh, I think it was when the King of England um, married uh, Mrs. Wallace, uh, Wallace Simpson, Mrs. Simpson. And Master actually wrote a defense for her, because I think this was her third marriage. And he, he, he defended her for not giving up on her ideals. <laughs> Isn't that odd? But you know, there was so... People are so... He also saw that just the pure hypocrisy of the whole situation. Everybody... Which is what people do. People just tout high moral principles when often they don't live up to them themselves and they're just being petty about other people. And he just, So he defended her. I thought that was so touching. And there was a lot of politics involved in that one too. So there was a lot of different things going on. No, master is master. Because this was... Uh, Recently, when the King George, George he was, had to abdicate because of her. Hmm. Master also quotes this, whom God has joined together, let no man put asunder. That is, the, that is the only place in his Bible commentary when he talks about soulmates. Um, not, not romantic soulmates, but soulmates created at the beginning of time that all, everything in creation, including our own individuality, is dual, and that we do, in fact, somewhere in the cosmos, have our other half. And that's where he says that before you achieve God-realization, you have to have that union with your soulmate. But by then, it's not marriage, it's not romance, it's on a completely different level. But as Swami said, the only place Master talks about soulmates is in this one paragraph of, on that level. And that's the level that Swami was writing and speaking about in Love perfected, life divine. Um, Completely different. He said, Master talks about it in that biblical commentary. But here he puts it, um, the inner union was to him the true meaning of this phrase. And Master really did say, once he also said, adultery is, 
He said many, many marriages, even sexuality within marriage is adulterous because there's not, no love and there's no soul union. He said that's really what counts. It's not the legal position. He said in or out of marriage. Adultery is sex without love. He said in or out of marriage is how he put it. And then he, he, he then said, there, you know, there is a real marriage and that real marriage is when there is a soul union between people. And that's to be respected. But otherwise, it's just as he said, uh, often a union between a nice shade of lipstick and a bow tie and a little romantic music, a little bit of a mood, and pretty soon you've got babies. <laughs> and the lights have come up and it's not so fun anymore. Okay. Let me just see if there's anything else here. He also just flatly contradicts, you know, the Christian church interpretation. If marriage obstructs a person's spiritual development, it may be his spiritual duty to leave it. If a lower duty conflicts with a higher one, it ceases to be a duty. We have to understand that dharma, dharma, which is that action which expands our consciousness, that's the only measure of dharma, that he's using duty in this concept. But it's if a lower dharma because you may have, you know, marriage is a dharma also. You've made a commitment to someone, perhaps you have children, you have many other elements there. It's not that it, it's not necessarily a duty. It's just that if the fulfillment of that conflicts with where your soul is trying to go, then everything has changed. Desire is also quite blinding at times, so we have to be very careful about this. But it's important to realize that in all circumstance, when... When uh, Dr. Lewis met Master, Dr. Lewis was the president of the Rosicrucian Society. And uh, it, was a, it was a big responsibility. People relied upon him. It was what he was doing. It was the best teaching he'd been able to find. And when he met Master, Master's teachings just uh, completely replaced, transcended, went so far beyond what the Rosicrucians were teaching that Dr. Lewis wanted to follow Master. But he asked Master... You know, this is a responsibility I've taken on. These people are relying on me. Isn't it my duty to continue in that responsibility? Master's response to Dr. Lewis said, Doctor, we cannot allow ourselves to be ruled by sentiment, was the word he used. And so to discern the difference between what is really a spiritual duty and what is merely a sentimental attachment. You know, I like my home, I like the way things are, I like my position in society, I like the respect I get from here, I like the comfort of this, you know, I, this is, I'm, I'm accustomed to this, what would I do if I didn't have this? Or just a, a sentimental feeling that I'm supposed to do this. Um, that's not quite the same, that's not at all the same as a real spiritual calling. Um, and that's why he says you have to have intuition. And better still, it's nice to have the intuition of other people who are not so involved so that uh, you can tell more easily. Uh, microphone? It, it, it seems almost like um, when you realize that a, uh, you're in a, you can distinguish between a higher dharma and a lower dharma, uh, one that, a lower dharma that formerly was dharmic, then uh, maybe at that point, and that point alone, it becomes a sentiment. 
Well, yeah, and that'll hold you. Your sentimental attachment to it'll hold you. I mean, it's... It's, it's deemed in a sentiment until you uh, realize the higher dharma. Right. Until there's something. But sometimes people cling to things even when, there's, when nothing has come to replace it. And, and just, it's just sentiment. You know, we get very sentimental about the things in our lives. It's really quite... Um, you know, it's, it's something to be conscious of. Oftentimes when I've um, helped people purge themselves of unwanted possessions, unneeded possessions, um, sentimental attachment to things that we have, you, you really just, you're holding on to all these different phases of our lives through all these different things that we have because they were really nice and I enjoyed being there. I, I particularly am not very sentimental and I let go of things, but I see the longing, especially at the age that I am now, you just sort of think about the things that you did and how much you enjoyed them. And there's a, just this inclination to cling. It's not so light, especially if they really were meaningful. I've spent a lot of time this last week with Durga, and Durga and I have a, had a very, very long history. And we've done a lot of very delightful and interesting and spiritually um, beneficial things together. And I could just feel this kind of... Sen- I think sentimental is the only word for it, this kind of sentimental welling up of I think I was sentimental for being 30. You know, it was, it was just everything. But you could, you could see how it just, well, how, why you would reincarnate, which didn't seem like a really good plan to me. But it, it, it's, not, it's not easy, because a lot of times you're sentimental about wonderful things. I, I have a certain sentiment for my first 10 years at Ananda. But when I said that one to Swami, I said, Sir, I would come back to just do those ten years again easily. Oh, he said, that's different. Because it was really for the spiritual joy of it. But line is fine. Okay. So, let's take a break on that rather depressing note. (laughs) All right, let's um, do this again. So, our next number 14 is really grim. (laughs) Okay. Number 14. The master wouldn't, as a rule, perform weddings if he saw that a couple were not suited to one another. Though circumstances forced him sometimes to relent in this respect. A couple once came to me, he told us, and asked me to marry them. I could see at once that they were unsuited to each other, so I refused their request. Let's go, dear, the man said angrily. Swami interjects here. I remember with delight the master's Bengali inflection as he imitated that word wrathfully delivered. Dear! They'd reached the door when I, I added, Yogananda added, please allow me to give you this one piece of advice. Just don't kill each other. Can you imagine? My word. Let's get out of here, dear. The man repeated furiously. He thought I was deliberately insulting them. Well, two months later, they returned. Thank God you sent us away with that warning, they cried. If it hadn't been for that, we might well have ended up killing each other. They hadn't realized what a cauldron of rage boiled within them. Marriage removed the lid from that pot. 
The steam once let out scalded them. Man alive. Excuse me, guys. Could you please either shut the door or have them come in or have them be quiet? Any one of the above will work. (laughs) Okay. Um, So, we have this rather weird story of people who had the good karma to have Master tell them not to murder each other. (laughs) I don't know what to make of that story. If anybody has any comments, we'll go on. Otherwise, we'll just go right on to number 15. (laughs) All right, number 15. I asked Swamiji, we asked Swamiji once as ministers, what happens about marriages we perform that end in divorce? Do we get any karma for it? He actually said, a little. (laughs) 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 But you know, what can you do? Okay. Um, Number 15. The subject of vows is quite subtle. It depends above all on inner intention. Now, this, this, gets, this is also about marriage, but people are always questioning about vows, sevaka vows, sadhaka vows, marriage vows, discipleship vows, you know, brahmachari vows, tyagi vows, pilgrim vows. We've got so many sort of running left, right, and center. Now, have we got three people in the conversation? No, you've come back. Okay. Um, more is, uh, it depends above all on inner intention. More is involved also, however. I mentioned other circumstances above that sometimes force the master to perform a marriage of which he didn't really approve. A good example springs to mind. A couple whose wedding the master regretted for he saw that it would block the man's spiritual development. Yet the master himself performed their wedding ceremony. Why, one may ask, did he do that? There are two answers. First, he wanted them to know that they had his blessings no matter what, and even though they were acting in opposition to his will. Second, by emphasizing strongly in the vows he had them take, their continued loyalty above all to God and Guru, and by virtually insisting that the man repeat that vow, Despite his clear reluctance to do so, the master sought to implant in their consciousness a deeper commitment to God. He must have seen that their marriage would cause the man in the future to turn away from master and even to try ineffectively as it turned out to damage him with a lawsuit. The master wanted to save his disciple from the serious sin of betraying his guru. Thus he got him to affirm his divine loyalty. Knowing, moreover, that the betrayal was karmically possible, he wanted to sow deeply in the man's consciousness an awareness of where his highest duty lay. Now, just to make this more interesting, this is the wedding that we have on film. Yeah, this is the one he's talking about. This is Brahmachari Narod, and I believe her name was Agnes Smith or something like that. And you see, Master, Swami doesn't like that bit of film at all. But you see, Master, just with this incredible intensity, um, he was a a brahmachari, he was a teacher in Master's work, and this um, white woman, as the Indians would call her, came along and got um, persuaded him to marry her. When When you watch the wedding, the sound of her voice is very shrill and not at all... Um, pleasant or, or sweet spiritually. So you sort of wonder what 
the whole thing. It's the sound of her voice. Even before I knew any of this, the sound of her voice doesn't, doesn't inspire you. And you know that uh, uh, Narod was a um, significant person. In fact, in the, in the play, Durga Mata talks about Brahmachari Narod was the one in Detroit who taught her and her then husband and friends all the teachings. And then she went to Mount Washington. Later, Brahmachari Narod also was there. She saw him when she visited Master. He was a key person. And later he filed a lawsuit against Master. But Master had learned his lesson with Dirananda. When Dirananda filed lawsuit against Master, um, Dirananda had, had, had grounds and was able to win a judgment and some money from Yogananda. But, bef- but after that, Master put in place certain commitments and papers and contracts that people signed so when Brahmacharya Narod tried to do the same thing, he didn't have any traction. He didn't have any grounds. But that was only because Master had um, protected himself from such a thing. But here's Master. His, his disciple wants to marry. Master knows whether or not marriage itself was a bad idea, that this woman is going to block the man's spiritual development. But Swami says in the path, as much as, pa- as possible... Master allowed his disciples to live live out their own fantasies. I think that's the word that Master uses. Just you have to just live it out. He he had this fantasy of what it was going to be like to be married to this woman, and Master tried to dissuade him from it. But if he would not be dissuaded, here it is again. Master wanted his disciples to know that even though they were going directly against his will, he was still going to stand by them. In the book of master's stories that I have um, of stories about Swamiji that I have I tell a story about a woman who uh, a person I'm not sure they said it was a woman or a man came to Swami and wanted his approval for a certain action and Swami did not approve of the action so he, he fudged his answer by saying well I bless you and the person came out thinking that master blessed the decision Master, I'm mean, Swamiji. He did not bless the decision, but he blessed the person. And then ever thereafter, you would never have known, unless you knew, which I happen to know, you would never have known that he really had preferred it not happen. Then the karma just played itself out as the karma had to play itself out. But Swami just, I mean, we used to, we used to actually, I used to think about it as, I mean, I had a concept for it, which is at all costs, Swami needed, Swami would preserve the relationship. Because if the relationship was lost, then everything was lost. If someone made a bad decision, that would just cost them time and trouble. But if the relationship was lost, everything was lost. So many, many times he, I saw him do that. And that's exactly where uh, Master was with Narod, who was actually seemingly a very close disciple. And there was just no way for him to oppose it and there was no way for him not to um, perform it himself. But he did, and you see when you watch it, just over and over again, you know, my commitment to self-realization, to guru, to God, and then he just has him say it repeatedly. Because imagine, you know, Master's power just planting that, knowing that there's this other karmic force that is uh, personified by the wife, who was a bad influence, but you know, you can, Master sees this other karmic force coming. He's trying to, you know, just put as much energy as he possibly can. So even if um, the road, as happened, you know, tumbled into 
the, inf- the, the wrong influence of the woman he was married to, that even after it was all over, he might still come back in the realization that it was wrong. And he would hear Master's voice and he would hear his own words saying it. So I know sometimes people will get very confused and get very dogmatic about vows. But it's, it's almost as if you don't even take one um, if, if it's already an accomplished fact. You mean people don't vow. I will vow never to murder anyone. But some people might have to make that vow because it's a constant temptation to want to murder someone. So we, we pick out these words that will say something that we're going to do our very best to live up to, but it's the intention that counts. I, by no means should one be casual about such things. But the end, this is, again, this goes back to marriage because that's a sacred vow that you take before God. But... Your intention may be one thing, but then your life may evolve in such a way that whatever that intention was, it's either no longer possible or maybe it's not even spiritually appropriate. So you move in another direction. So anyway, it's a fascinating story, isn't it? It's kind of a, what would I say, a a roiling section. (laughs) Okay. Yes. Uh, microphone to Chandra, please. I, I thought that marriage scene was strange just because of when it was filmed. You know, it was so old. Well, Now lo- I understand a whole lot more. <laughs> there's Thank lots you. of things going through it. You can see Master's incredible intensity as he leads them in that, those vows, just extremely intense because he was trying to, you know, forestall a karma that was looming on the horizon. And the next one, um, this next one is the same thing about, you know, this uh, young monk that was about to leave and Master just kept having him repeat his brahmachari vows over and over, knowing he was about to go, just to get them planted deep into his subconscious so when the time came again, the power would be there. I mean, when you think in terms of many incarnations, that's what we're working with. I mean, really, when you, when you think about the the actual promise of some of these vows that we take, whether it's a marriage vow or any others, these are very high-level vows. So it's only natural it's going to take us more than one incarnation to perfect them if you really think about it. So how, how we perfect things is not as black and white as um, fundamentalist teaching would have us believe. Progress is more as, as when we often said, like the tide coming in. You know, there's just some waves go higher and then the next waves are really low. Eventually the tide comes in, but it doesn't just, here's low tide, here's high tide. There's this long cycle of just sort of going to the beach and withdrawing and going to the beach and withdrawing. Beach time just inching up a little. All of this, I mean, everything in this book too, it's just, you know, how, um, how fluid and how not dogmatic the teaching of self-realization is. It's very important for us to remember this because now that Swami's gone, it's just slipping left, right, and center. Not badly, but the temptations are always there because we don't have him to straighten it out. Okay, any other comments before we go to 16? We ought to make that required reading on an annual basis for everyone on our path. Yeah. Right in there. I mean, there's preservation for you. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) Okay, number 16. 
On the subject of vows, there is more to be said also. To some extent, obviously, the master saw vows as an affirmation. One of the monks who had come to the master while very young was a sweet, simple soul, deeply devoted to the guru. The master showed him special love in response to his purity of heart. One day, however, a sister of this boy, who also lived in Mount Washington, found the master deeply sad. What's the matter, master? she inquired anxiously. Your brother is going to leave the path, was the reply. As I understand the story, it was not necessarily in the boy's karma to leave. Interesting points on this one. Rather, it was mass karma that drew him downward, as if into a vortex for lack of sufficient resolve on his own part. His weakness was that he depended too heavily on others' goodwill. This boy once told me, in a somewhat puzzled tone, Master had, my, had me repeat my vows of renunciation and discipleship to him. He even did it more than once. The interesting point here is that the master knew the boy was going to break his vows. Obviously, what he wanted was to help this disciple to affirm his spiritual commitment, hoping that the affirmation itself would at least strengthen his future understanding. Whether or not the attempt worked, I don't know. I, too, was anxious for the boy's future, for I knew him to be sincere and good-hearted. Evidently, the master felt there was still a chance to avert the negative karma, which must not have been strong in him. Master said once, I saw this young man laughing superficially with some of the other men one day. Later, I told him, This is the first time you have cut off my vibrations by your lightness. I wanted to see him become stronger in himself. After the boy left, he became a policeman. This was consonant with his need for inner strength. Later, it can only have been under the influence of others, he became a Christian fundamentalist of the kind that would never, I imagine, accept master. I never heard from the man directly, but I cannot believe that he lost the love he felt for the master in his heart. And at least, in fact, importantly, he made a spiritual, not a worldly church, a choice, even if his church affiliation took him into a narrower vision. Wow, there's a lot in there, isn't there? First you have this sort of touching, sweet young man that master... Because of his purity of heart, Master showed him a special love. And that implies many things, that Master himself was touched by the simplicity of this um, boy's attention to him, that also Master was able to, to return to him a kind of love, knowing that the boy would understand and receive it in the right way. You know, it's not as if Master wouldn't have given that love to others, but others may not have been able to take it in the same way. When you think of somebody, the way Master describes that man, you think of childlike. And I was remembering the story of Hare Krishna Gosha's sister, Shefley. This is Master's niece, who was three years old when Master went to India. And she was totally attached to Master. And he responded to her as a, as a loving uncle would, um, let her sit on his lap, you know, held, held her in his arms. She had no conscious memory of any of this. 
but family told her, and I've never actually seen photographs, although you would think there would have been one. But the point being, because she was a child and was so innocent in the way she loved him, Master could just embrace her in exactly the same way. And so many times with us, we ourselves are, are, are complex in our devotion, and that blocks the kind of simple response, wholehearted response that Master could give to someone who's childlike in their devotion. So it's a very sweet part of the story. But then he starts talking about this because he was, you know, he had a simple nature. As I understand, it was not necessarily in the boy's karma to leave. It was mass karma that drew him downward as if into a vortex for lack of sufficient resolve on his own part. His weakness was that he depended too heavily on others' goodwill. And later on he talks about this time where this young man gets caught up in what must have been very superficial, perhaps even worldly conversation, and just goes with that flow instead of holding himself separate from it. Master said, talking about like airplane crashes where everyone is killed or something like that, Master has made the statement, it's not necessarily everyone's karma to die, but perhaps some of them did not have enough karma to live. And so they got drawn into it. And so, you know, we could be talking about if Swami was there, because Swami says, I too was anxious about this boy's future, so Swami was there. This is a story that happened during Swami's time with Master, which was the last three and a half years of Master's life. And in other places, Swami explains to us how Master was pushing on everyone testing the organization and many heads will roll is how Master put it in another context because Master knew he was about to leave and he needed to purge only those who were strong enough to really hold to it after Master had gone just as in Jesus' life he did the same because what Master could hold together with his magnetism um, after he wasn't there to do it could be um, could leave the legacy too too fragmented. So when he talks about the mass karma that he was drawn into the vortex, there was a vortex of energy of people who were exiting at that point because because Master was pushing a little bit. Who's really with me and who's not? And so this man was with Master, but not strong enough. He was with it because he could just go along with it. Everybody else was. And then when those same other people began to lose interest, he could just as easily go along with that. This is a very important teaching here. We have to really know why we're on this path and we have to generate energy constantly to, to make that really strong in ourselves so we won't be vulnerable to just, you know, when, when others of my team decide that this isn't their path anymore, that we just go along with them because after all, we've, we're here because of them whether it's your sister, your mother, your friends, your batchmates, the same people who came in with you, whatever it might be. You have to always bring it back to your individual relationship with God. Why am I doing this? That's why the years of persecution that we went through with the lawsuits and so on, especially the lawsuits where there was so much criticism of our, of our whole everythingness, it was extremely um, uh, stimulating spiritually. Because you really got to find out, why am I really here? What do I really believe? 
if other people say that I'm deluded and that what I'm involved in is really not wholesome, what do I, what do I think? And if other people say, well, there's a much greater teacher up at Mount Shasta, we're going to all go up and see him, do you want to come? You know, sure, why not? That's where he said he depended too much on the goodwill of others. Just everybody was with him and was happy about what he was doing. But then if they're going to do something else, well, he just wants to stay in with them. Yes. That's the implication when Master says down here. He, just, he says, by your lightness, he was laughing superficially. But there, there must have been a little more there. He allowed, he just went along with what was going around him and then just got himself completely drawn away from the vibration of Master. And this is a very big warning. But Master's response to it was to have him, you know, kneel and be, give his discipleship vows and his monk vows and his discipleship vows and his monk vows. Just the way he says it more than once, as I heard the story, it was even more than more than once. It was just like Master on, you know, took the opportunity whenever he could to get him to affirm it. He was planting seeds for who knows what incarnation. And then you follow out the rest of the story. He becomes a policeman and a fundamentalist Christian in the end. Just, you never know what people are doing. And in the end, where will all of that lead? You know, what's really planted in there? Lifetime. You never know. It's just, and what Swami says, at least he made a choice for God. A peculiar choice for God, but he had his own reasons for doing it. Yeah, this, is, this is all, there's two, two things that we can, two important things, among others, that we can draw from this. One is, be nice to yourself. You never really know what's going to happen. Be nice to others because you never really know what's going to happen. Don't worry about what anybody else looks like, you think they're doing. You just never know what's going to happen. You just find your own uh, clarity as much as you can. Follow it as sincerely as possible with humility and devotion. And uh, be ready. Yes? seems like a reminder to pay attention to the really long rhythms and cycles because yeah. he said being a policeman was good for his need to develop inner strength probably being a fundamentalist as well because you know like at least the classic image of them is they're going to hold on to exactly that and nothing else right. and so maybe he just had to take this lifetime to build that up and so master's going okay you know we'll just have this hook in here for the next lifetime and what's a lifetime okay you go spend a lifetime learning this skill and we'll get back on the job next time. Right. And that's why Swami says, you know, he, he made a God choice. He didn't repudiate God altogether. He just made a different one. You just don't know. You never know. And the masters just wait. And they never give up on us. Wow. It's a good thing. Yeah, it's a good thing. You bet. It's a good thing. Best thing we got going. Okay. One more thing. But it's really important. <coughs> It's but it's really important in that to be sure which side of the energy you're on. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because if we're talking about these people drifting off, influenced by others. and yeah. So there's a moment-by-moment, there are moment-by-moment decisions we make, mm-hmm. which may be very minor. Right. The little bit of lightness, the distraction, yeah. the appeal. And... You know, this is why when people say things like, oh yeah, you're in the honeymoon phase on the spiritual path and you know, after you get, take Kriya, it gets much harder. And yeah, I remember when I used to really enjoy those kirtans, but I just don't go anymore. 
I mean, those are, those are horrible things to say. They're horrible things to feel and they're much worse to articulate. You know, just don't do that. Don't do it to yourself and don't do it to anyone else. You know, it's, that's, that's the beginning of the end is when you just start denigrating what really has to be sacred and make fun of things. And I had some friends who were very dear friends, but they, they used to just, they had mocking humor. And I remember in the car once, and I, in my house actually, I said, not in my hearing and not in my house. You know, you can, I don't think you should do this anywhere, but you will not do it in my house and you will not do it where I can hear you. And if you start again, you're going to have to just leave. It's just like, no way. I'm just not going to put up with it. It's, it's bad for you. It's terrible for you. But I just, I'm not going to hear it. Don't, th- don't play with that. Just don't think, oh, it doesn't matter. I, ne- I need to go along. I don't want to look like a stick in the mud. I don't want to seem to be too fundamentalist. I mean, maybe you have to just walk away. In my case, they were in my house. So, yes, what were you going to say? Well, just think of the karma yeah. of, of taking those positions where you get far enough away that you're pulling others with you yes, really. to go. I mean, the person I learned meditation from is gone. Yeah. I, mean, I could go down a list. The person who taught me how to chant yeah. is gone. And it's nothing to mess with. No, it's nothing to mess with. And so you need to, anytime you're saying anything to someone that is not spiritually encouraging, don't. <laughs> You know, even if you, if you feel it yourself, deal with it inside you or deal with it with somebody who can help you come out of it. Bad enough that you're having it, don't spread it around. I become very upset when I hear people saying those things. First I become, first I become upset for the person who's saying it for their sake, that they can just casually say, oh yeah, the path used to be you know, really wonderful, now it's just kind of a drag. And I feel terrible for them spreading that to others. But people will say that, but it's just a question of who you want to be. You know, you just look and you just ask yourself, among my choices, who do I want to be? It's not that nothing changes. It's not that you can, you can say, yes, you know that, I, now I, I did that and now I do this. But that's quite different than you'll get over it. You know, I know you're really enthusiastic now, but you'll get over it. It's just like, but really, people say things like that. I mean, it just sounds stunning. And the other one they say is, yeah, as soon as you take Kriya initiation, your life will fall apart. And people actually become afraid to take Kriya because people will say things like that. That's that whole question, does the path get harder or easier? Well, your perception of reality changes, so it just depends on how you're going to work with that. Are, are you going to change on the spiritual path? Friends, that's the point, right? We don't have the whole picture, so yes, our understanding of reality will change. And that will have implications. And some of those implications may be inconvenient. But we can't be ruled by sentiment, can we? This is not for sissies. Really. A spiritual path. Courage is the first one. Go back and listen to the spiritual warrior. Courage is the first one. But what choice do we have? Somebody give me an alternative. The alternative is how much longer do we want to suffer? Hmm. Hmm. Not very much longer. Courage and loyalty. I mean, there was the five qualities, courage, loyalty, devotion, um, seeing the hand of God in everything. All of those points are all true. It's just interesting when Swami writes the five qualities, the first one is courage. And I've often thought about that. 
Because it's courage in a thousand ways. It's not just enduring, you know, being stabbed with knives kind of courage, but the courage to say, I'm sorry, in my house we don't talk like that. To say, please excuse me, but I really don't want to be with you when you're going to be like that. Or just silently picking up and leaving. Just because this is not my way. All right. Yeah. Okay, great souls. That's it for tonight. Well, we just whipped through three or four tonight. Say again. Can I borrow someone's pen, please? We did. um, We finished on 16 and we started on 11. So we went from 11 to 16 this time. Okay. So we might finish before 2020. (laughs) okay I am in town and I believe I'm here every Tuesday until September 23rd which I believe is a Wednesday and I'm I'm gone from September 23rd to October 19 19 might be a Monday but I I won't do a class on the 20th because I'll be. Um, I'm going to Los Angeles on the 12th. I'm going. I'm. I'm just talking about Tuesday nights. So all Tuesday. I, it's, I believe it's all Tuesdays until, I believe the 22nd of September is the last. And then I'm only gone for four weeks. That's it. I'm going on the 23rd. I go to the East Coast for a weekend retreat and a satsang. On the Monday after that is done, I fly to Rome. And to visit our friends, my friends in Assisi and to meditate in Swami's room. And then I go from Rome to Tel Aviv. Aviv. And then we, I'm doing the Jerusalem, the uh, Israel pilgrimage with the Gyandev and Diksha. Then I come back. I was setting up all these lectures and I said, I don't want to. <laughs> so I'm taking a three-week holiday. Yeah, there you are. I'm very happy about it, but one month here first. Okay. Then I go I also go to Los Angeles on the twelfth, but that's just a weekend, so <laughs>